This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, on this 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time, we have a tremendous privilege. The privilege of reading a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's from chapter 2 of that letter, and it's one of the most stunning and illuminating passages in the New Testament. Let me say a quick word about uh, Paul and Philippi. This was a church that he knew and loved. That comes through in the letter very clearly. It's also the first city in Europe that Paul um, evangelized. So Paul's working in, um, in Asia Minor. He comes to Troas, the region around Troy, and then he has a vision, it's a dream, of a man from Macedonia calling him to come and evangelize there. And so following that prompt, Paul came across into Europe, and he comes to this town of Philippi, which was a Roman colony, and there he preaches the gospel. How important this is the beginning of European Christianity, and therefore it's the beginning of a revolution in culture that would eventually change the whole world. And so this little town of Philippi, this little tiny Christian community to which Paul writes, is of enormous importance. And the letter he writes contains this uh, famous passage, which is um, central, really, in the New Testament and central to the consciousness of Christianity. Here's the passage now I'm going to focus on from chapter 2. Have in you the same attitude that is also in Christ Jesus. So he's telling the Philippians, here's the way I want you to operate, the way I want you to think, the way I want you to see. It's the same mind, that's the word Paul uses here, the same mind that's in Christ Jesus. And now here's how he describes Christ's mind. Listen. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Now let's pause here just for a second. There were many stupid things about the Da Vinci Code, but the stupidest, I would say, is the claim that somehow the divinity of Christ was maintained only much later in the Christian tradition, that it was Constantine or it was bishops around that time who began to say for the first time that Jesus is God, and that prior to that, he was a nice, uh, inspiring, philosophical teacher. Well, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Let me tell you when this letter of Paul was written. Somewhere in the early, maybe maybe as late as the mid-50s of the first century, where within a couple of decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, this text now that I've begun to cite, scholars think, was actually a hymn that Paul would have known, would have heard, and he sort of incorporated that hymn into his letter. That means that this text, in its, in its primordial form, goes back even earlier 
than the 50s, maybe into the 40s of the first century. We're dealing here with one of the earliest texts in the whole tradition. And what does it say about Jesus? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He's in the morphe tuteu in the Greek there. He's in the form of God. One teacher among many, hardly. One guru, one more rabbi among many, no way, no way. What's being maintained here is that Jesus is in the very form of God. Do not believe those who say the divinity of Jesus is some later accretion. No, no. In one of the earliest texts we have, it's affirmed. But now, let's move into the theology of it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. How important that is, isn't it? God, I've said, is not so much the supreme being. He's the supreme giving. Let me say that again. He's not the supreme being hanging on to prerogative and privilege like the, like the mythological gods. God is the supreme giving, the supreme letting go. The very divinity of Jesus is manifested in his refusal to cling to godliness. A wonderful poetic paradox at the heart of our faith. To be God is to be the one who lets go of godliness. Listen now as Paul goes on. Rather, he, Christ, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. Here's all of Christianity. The Son of God didn't cling to godliness, but rather emptied himself. Kenosis is the Greek word there. There's a whole theological school called the Kenotic School that focuses on this idea of the self-emptying of the Son of God. He took the form of a slave. Now, mind you, this is a, um, a culture that knew about slavery. We know about slavery in the abstract. They knew it concretely. They knew what a slave was. Someone who's utterly devoted to another, utterly given over to another. See the power of this. That God, God, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, becomes for our sake a slave. He becomes our servant. Every mythology I know, every other point of view I know that talks about God would emphasize how God, you know, lords it over. We're God's slaves. And indeed we are. That's correct to say. But see how wonderful that what prompts that is that God first becomes our slave. I don't know, any philosophical or religious tradition that makes a claim as bold and poetically rich as that one. He didn't deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a slave, our servant. And then what's next? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I've often said, for us, the cross is a religious symbol. It's a decorative sign. We look at a crucifix and say, oh, isn't that beautiful? And that's right for us. But you're in the first century when this thing was written, 
You're in the 50s of the first century. You're in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. So they knew all about Roman law, Roman discipline. And you talk about a cross. They knew vividly what that meant. That was state-sponsored terrorism, the cross. If you got out of line with Rome, that's what they did to you. They would nail you to this instrument of torture, and they leave you there to die. It might take hours. It might take days. You were exposed to the elements, exposed to the wild animals, and you died a very slow and very agonizing death. That's what the cross meant for someone like Paul or anyone reading him in Philippi. So how low did the Son of God go? Well, first taking the form of a slave, becoming our servant, but then humbling himself, becoming obedient to death. Okay, that's low enough, you'd say. But then even death on a cross. What he's saying is dying the worst death you could imagine from the standpoint of physical suffering, but also the standpoint of psychological suffering. Humiliation in the extreme. That's how low the Son of God went, friends, in order to find us. There's Christianity. The Father sent the Son all the way to the limit of God-forsakenness. Into our humanity, yes. Into our finitude, yes. Becoming our servant, yes. But even more, dying the death that we fear, and even dying that death on a cross. You see what Paul's saying? It's as though the two persons of the Trinity here, Father and Son, are stretched to the absolute limit. That's how far God was willing to go to find us. That's why... Think of any human being in any situation of suffering, whether it's physical suffering, psychological suffering, economic suffering, someone who's at the at their wit's end, the end of the rope. God went that far and further. The divine love came down even to that lowest place. That's what he's saying to the Philippians. But then now look as the hymn goes on. Look as this rhythm kicks in. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Look what's happening. The Son has gone all the way down from the Father, all the way to God forsakenness. Having enveloped thereby even those who are most alienated from God, he now, in the Holy Spirit, comes back to the Father. God greatly exalted him. You see what's happening? In the Spirit now, the Son returns to the Father, drawing with him the whole of the suffering human race. More to it, he bestows on him the name above every name. Now see, no Jew would miss this. What's the name above every name? The name of Yahweh. It was the unpronounceable name, the name of God. Once again, the divinity of Jesus is not something invented by Constantine. Don't believe that. It's affirmed here in a hymn from the 40s of the first century. The divinity of Jesus is the condition for the possibility of our salvation. You see, because we've been drawn into the divine life. 
We've been drawn into the Spirit which connects the Father and the Son. And now the hymn concludes, and Paul concludes. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Curios, right? Jesus is the Lord. Paul says it over and over again in his writings. Lord, Curios, translates Adonai in his Hebrew. That's Lord, the word that you'd use of God. That's the name above every other name. Jesus is the Lord, meaning he's the one now who reigns over heaven and earth, right? Every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Caesar's not the Lord. No earthly prince is the Lord. Christ is the Lord. He's the one to whom final allegiance is due. Paul saw his task as an evangelist was to declare precisely this lordship to the world. But see, friends, the great poetry paradox of this. Our Lord is not someone who dominates us in the negative sense. Our Lord is the one who emptied himself for us out of love. Paul is summing up Christianity to the Philippians in this passage, and he's summing it up for us today. We must submit to the lordship of the one who became our slave. Now, if you get that, you get Christianity. You get all of its wonder, all of its poetry, and all of its power. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. I'm Father Robert Barron. Our new Catholicism documentary series and study program can now be pre-ordered online. Go to CatholicismPreorder.com. Will you help me introduce this one-of-a-kind film series and catechetical program to your parish, school, and diocese? Journey around the world and deep into the faith in this 10-part, 10-hour epic adventure. Learn more at CatholicismPreorder.com.